0: Take your Bible and let's go back to the book of Philippians. Our text before us this morning is a familiar one. As I've studied it this past week, there is a tendency in our hearts to approach the Bible from an intellectual perspective, especially when we read the writings of Paul. It's very logical in the way he lays out his arguments. And it's easy for us, me, to get caught up in the intellectual understanding of what the text is saying. No matter when we approach God's Word, whether we're reading it individually or we're hearing it preached, we need to be mindful of the fact that we need God's Spirit to work in our hearts to to go beyond that intellectual understanding and to allow the truth of God's Word to impact us internally. And it's like that with our text this morning. We're going to look at this text together. You can understand it at an intellectual level, but there is some rich truth that is here that I, to a certain degree, feel inadequate to explain and to lay out, but I will do the best of my ability to explain it in that way. And then let me ask you to listen with a heart dependent upon the Holy Spirit To reveal the truth of this passage to all of us. Because it's a passage that we all desperately need this morning. As I was preparing this message and looking at the text this morning or this this past week, I was reminded of a story I once heard of a little girl who had received a five dollar bill for her birthday. And this was the first time in her young life that she could remember having received money for her birthday, and she was absolutely thrilled. The next day, her brother came to her, and in his hand, he held a large, shiny, bright 50-cent piece, and he had a proposition for her. He offered this large, solid piece of money for the flimsy piece of paper that she had received the day before. To her, it seemed like a great idea. So she immediately went, got that $5 bill she had received for her birthday, and made the exchange. We all smile at that story because we understand the foolishness of what that little girl did. And yet, that little girl made a decision because, because of her wrong priorities. She valued the wrong thing. And that value system in her life affected her in the fact that she lost $4.50 of spending value in order to gain something that was shiny and bright, and yet it was really significantly worth less than what she had been given. Now we see this tendency in children, but the reality is, is that this tendency of having the wrong value system can affect us as adults as well. We value the wrong things in this life. And as we read throughout Scripture, we are constantly encouraged to examine what we're living for and how we are valuing certain things. And this passage helps us to remember that even though we are tempted to to not value Christ as we ought, we need to readjust our thinking and see Christ as he is. And as this passage presents him, Christ, who is of surpassing worth. He is worth more than anything the world offers. He is worth more than anything that we ourselves can gain. And we see that immediately when we are presented with the gospel, because he is worth more than any of our spiritual gains and attainments. He is the perfect Savior. Because he is the perfect Savior, we must look to him and value him as the scriptures present him. Our focus is going to be on verses 7 and 8 this morning, but in order for us to understand these two verses, I want to back up and and look at the beginning of this chapter. Paul opens up this section of his epistle with a warning. In verse 2, he says this, Look out for dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He is not speaking here of three individual groups of people that the Philippian church was to be on the lookout for. Instead, he is speaking of one group in particular, and those were the Judaizers. These were individuals, people who believed in Jesus as the Messiah, and yet they felt the need to go beyond Christ's sufficient death on the cross to add something to his work. And specifically, the Judaizers were wanting to add law to what Christ has done. And if we narrow the focus even more from the law, specifically, it was circumcision and keeping the dietary laws. And Paul says, watch out for them. Be on guard. They are dogs. They mutilate the flesh. They are evildoers. And Paul wants to address the concept that the Judaizers were putting out there, the fact that in some way, law could add to the finished work of Christ. And this theme of Christ's sufficient work permeates uh, Paul's writings. It permeates the entire Bible because it is the message of Christ. It is his work that is sufficient on the cross. And so what Paul does is he lays out himself as an example he lays out himself as someone who of anybody could be able to stand on his own two feet and have some sort of religious worth that God might find meritorious. He says in verse uh, 3, "For we are the circumcision who worship God by this uh, worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh." Those who look to Christ alone for salvation don't put confidence in the flesh. But Paul says, you want to talk about confidence? Let's talk about me. And he lays out seven different accomplishments of himself that set him apart from all the other Jews of his day. Three of those were things that he inherited as an individual. Four of those were accomplishments that he had made. Let's look at those very quickly. First of all, in verse 5, it says that he was circumcised on the eighth day. From the very beginning of his life, he was entrenched in the Jewish system. And from the very beginning, he kept every ritual that the law required, beginning from his birth. Secondly, he says that he's of the people of Israel. He is saying not only was he circumcised, but he was of the, uh, of the nation of Israel, God's chosen covenant people. And then he narrows that down to a specific tribe, the tribe of Benjamin. He is able to trace his lines back to one of the most respected tribes in all of Israel. And as he grows He is put into the educational system to receive the best education that he could receive, and he points himself out as the Hebrew of the Hebrews. He grew up resisting the pagan influence that was around him, and he was immersed in the Jewish education of his day, the best that he could get. He goes on to say, as to the law of Pharisee, his religious devotion was of the very best, The Pharisees of the day were the highest sect that boasted in their keeping of the law. And Paul is saying, of all the Pharisees that are out there, I was at the top. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, the Pharisees were big into proselytizing and seeking to bring people into their belief system. Paul says, not only did I do that, but I went beyond that in my zeal for what I believed, and I went and tried to stamp out what I thought was preventing people from becoming like me. He went around and he persecuted the church, attempting to eliminate the gospel and what Christ stood for. Finally, he says this, As to the righteousness under the law, He was blameless. If anyone was to look at his life, they wouldn't have nothing to accuse him of. He kept the law blamelessly in the eyes of others. And Paul sets himself up as this individual that is almost unbelievable. And he is setting himself up for this purpose. If anyone was able to merit anything in God's sight, it was Paul because of what he had inherited and because of what he had accomplished. Verse 7, though, begins with a a transition. Paul says, look at all of this and who I am. But, it's an important conjunction there as 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 he switches from, he wants his readers to take notice that what he is about to say is important and significant in comparison to what he has just laid out. He says this, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. What Paul is going to do throughout these next few verses is he's going to use these accounting terms. And it's almost as if Paul is setting up a ledger before his readers with two sides. One of them are gains, and one of them are losses. And he wants his readers to see these two sides. He wants them to see what truly is important and what truly is a loss. He uses the word gain, those things that are important or valuable to him. And these things that he has listed are genuine gains. They're not theoretical from a human perspective. They set him apart. People viewed him with respect and authority because of these things that he's just listed in the previous verses. He's also going to talk about this concept of loss, those things that are worthless or those things that are to his disadvantage. So these are the way, this is the way that he lays out his argument before him. them. And so what I've done this morning is that is the way I have laid out the outline. It's a little bit unusual. Normally, point one goes with the first few verses that we're going to look at, and point two goes with the maybe third and fourth verses that we're going to look at. But I've laid this out the way Paul does so that visually we can see what is happening here. At the top of your outline, we have the, um, the things that, um, that, 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 that we have to realize that have no value in our lives. And secondly, we have those things that are of value, those things, that one who is priceless. So Paul here begins by letting his readers know that his That personal achievements have no value in the kingdom of God. How does he do that? He's just laid out all of these things that the people would look at as gain. They were significant in the religious community. People would have viewed them um, with respect and esteem. And as I said before, surely if anyone had a right standing before, um, before God, it would have been Paul. But Paul has a complete mind shift In his thinking about these things. And he puts it this way in verse seven, whatever gain I had, I counted them as loss. That word count there has the idea of a reckoning, a way to think, to consider, or to regard. And he's looking back on his past to this, the experience that he had on the road to Damascus when he was in pursuit in his zeal. Attempting to stamp out Christianity and in his mind doing a service to God that God would look at with approval, he's on his way there and he comes face to face with Jesus Christ. And when that happens, his mind shift completely changes. He realizes that all these things that he had held up and that he had held on to as of gain now were of no worth. Each of the accomplishments that he had had, um, he lists them as, as, uh, as gains in his life. It's like he, in that ledger, he lists all of those individual accomplishments of things that he could look at with pride and things that perhaps would gain a, a favor before God. When he comes face to face with Christ, he realizes that those things are worthless. And in a sense, he takes all of those accomplishments and he takes them from the gain side and he moves them over to the loss side. They are of no value. And it's interesting here as we look at the text, he's using the word gain in, in a plural sense, uh, look, or individual sense, looking at all of the individual gains that he had had. But then he takes all of those and lumps them all together and he says they are one big thing. Loss. Paul, though, is not just thinking them of them as something to the the, as a disadvantage. He's viewing them as condemning. These things that he was hanging on to were good, yet there was an improper motivation um, before them. They were condemning all of those righteous. All, those, all of those attempts to gain righteousness before God were blinding him to God's plan of salvation. And in addition, they were imperfections and they're full of failures and sin. And any attempt that we make to replace or supplement the finished work of Christ is sin. And as such, those who do bring condemnation on themselves. And Paul completely shifts his mind about what he thinks about those things. What was it? That shifted his mind. It was Christ. It was seeing Christ for who he is and what he had done. And he sees Christ and the connection to Christ as being something that is worth taking all those gains and putting them on the lost side. He sees all of those as beyond price. Paul saw Christ as in all of his glory. He saw Christ as the perfect Son of God. He saw Christ as the final and perfect sacrifice from sin. He saw Christ as the one who could save him from all of his sins. All of those gains that he had placed, his confidence paled in comparison to who Christ was as the Son of God and what Christ had done on the cross to redeem his soul from his sin. And Paul says my mindset shifted and I changed in my thinking because I saw Christ in all of his glory. This glory the glory of this truth is only seen when he fully understood his sin and the just judgment that he deserved. You see as he as he views christ he he realizes his desperate need of a savior this experience is not unique to paul this is the experience that every individual must have when they come to christ they must view any righteousness that they think they have any spiritual heritage that they have experienced, they must view all of those things as loss. They must view all of those things as even condemning before Christ. And they must see Christ as the Savior. And they must look to him with, uh, in faith so that they might be saved. Paul was confronted with these truths. And as he saw them, He was crushed under the requirements of the law. There is no one who keeps those requirements. There's no one here who can keep those requirements. Our situation seems hopeless, but Christ is there. Christ changes everything. Christ changes the darkness of our sin into the blazing light of hope. He offered himself as a perfect sacrifice for his sin. The requirements of the law were met, God's wrath was satisfied, and now sinful mankind has a way into relationship with God. And it is this glorious truth that compels Paul to view everything of his past as loss. Christ is priceless in his salvation. Paul continues to make this point by shifting from his past to where he is in the present. The event that Paul was referring to on the road to Damascus took place some 30 years previous. And so the question might be raised, Paul, is it still worth it? After all these years, is it still worth it to look at all of those things as loss for the sake of Christ? And Paul answers that question with a resounding yes. Verse 8 begins with the word "Indeed." And this word, indeed, is a series of five different Greek articles that are very difficult to translate, but that what they communicate is something of importance, and it stresses the insignificance of Paul's current achievements with the incalculable benefits of a relationship with Christ. And in essence, he's saying, "Indeed, for sure, yes." I count everything as loss, for the sake, um, for the sake of. Uh, excuse me. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Paul again is talking about his thinking. You see, his thinking shifted on the road to Damascus when he realized that all of his attainments spiritually were worthless and condemning. He is saying that right now his thinking is still the same. He counts everything as loss. Paul looks at his current life and all of his accomplishments and all that God has done through him. All of these things tell him do no good as far as attaining righteousness before God. And so he thinks differently about them. Hard to know exactly what Paul is talking about when he uses just this this all-encompassing word and he says, everything. But one way we can look at this is to think of all the uh, spiritual accomplishments that he has achieved since becoming a follower of Jesus. He was a foremost missionary and church planter. He was known all over the world at that point for uh, preaching and teaching and planting churches. He was highly respected in the churches at that time. He had had his own personal revelations from Jesus himself as he was taught. Paul says, all of these things, I count them as loss. I don't view them as something that gains me any merit or favor before God. I don't view them as something that I want to hang on to. He says, I want to move all of these things that might be seen in your eyes as gains. And again, I move them all over to the loss column. In fact, these things viewed in the wrong way, these spiritual accomplishments that he had could hinder his relationship with God because they could take a place of priority in his life above what he goes on to say, and that is of knowing Christ they might compete for that allegiance. They might be thought of as meritorious. And Paul says, no, those gains, they're loss. They're as much of a loss and to my disadvantage as what all of those accomplishments I had before salvation. Once again, Paul explains then, continues to explain why. Why, Paul? Why are these things that you've experienced, why do you look at them as loss? And Paul puts it this way. He says it's because of this. Because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. The transformation that took place in his life was significant. Paul moves from the righteous standing he has because of of, of who Christ is and what he has done, He moves from the personal, or from the righteous standing he has before God because of Christ. He moves from there to a more personal reason. There is an intimate relationship that Paul has with Christ. And this relationship is seen in two ways. First, Paul uses this word knowing. He says, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. When Paul came face to face with Jesus on the road to Damascus, he had to under intellectually certain truths. He had to understand intellectually that his attainment spiritually meant nothing. And he had to understand intellectually the reality of what Christ had done for him on the cross in pain for man's sin. And those, under, those truths had to move him to respond and embrace Christ, which then opened up the relationship that he has with Christ. This word here, knowing, is not talking about merely the intellectual understanding of who Christ is. This word, knowing, speaks of a relationship. It includes the experience of being loved by him and loving him in return. This word uh, in its parallel in the Old Testament has the idea of, of God knowing those who are his in relationship. It's a personal relationship. One commentator put it this way, the Pauline expression to know Christ is intimate and glows with the warmth of a direct relationship. Paul here says this, knowing Christ far surpasses any of these spiritual attainments and gains that I have right now. I look around me, they're lost compared to the relationship that I have with Christ. The other way that this word is seen as far as a um, relationship is, he finishes this statement in this kind of unusual way for Paul. He says, "...the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord." And you can almost see as Paul is penning these words, his heart is just filling with joy and gratitude to the Lord and the relationship that he has with him. And he says, "'The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, the one who has saved me, the one whom I was trying to stamp out previous to my conversion.'" He is my Lord. And there is just a warmth of relationship that Paul is expressing here. This relationship that Paul has with Christ is not unique. We read these words and we say to ourselves, Paul had such an amazing relationship with Christ. But this relationship that that Paul had with Christ is the benefit that all of us have who know him as our Savior. Paul didn't have some sort of unique corner on relationship with God. That is the relationship that is offered to all people who come to him. That is the relationship that you can have. This is the relationship that he offers to you and that you have right now that we need to grow in. Paul, though, qualifies or explains this relationship in this way. He says that he has counted everything as loss. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of this relationship. Again, it's this comparison that Paul is making between these gains and these losses, the ledger of things that are, are amazing and things that are not And Paul says that this relationship with Christ surpasses any worth. I think the best way to illustrate this is through what Jesus uh, explained in the parables, both of the treasure in the field and the pearl of great price. What happened in both of those stories? Jesus says that the kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field or a valuable pearl that is found. And Jesus says that when an individual realizes what is in that field, and when they realize what that pearl is worth, they go and they sell everything they have. Why? Because nothing compares to the surpassing value of Christ and being part of his kingdom. And we miss that. We view our Christianity as something that we do on a Sunday or we view it as something that is just part of our lives from a routine perspective. And Paul here wants us to understand that there is nothing more valuable than knowing Christ. And how do we respond to that? How do I respond to that? We treat the relationship that we have with Christ as trivial. And we treat the things of this world as important. We live our lives in such a way that does not reflect the reality of the surpassing value of Christ. Why is this relationship with Christ so valuable? Here's a few ways. Christ's present is constant. His grace is sufficient. His love is everlasting. His power is limitless as we go to him in prayer. And his prayers for us are effectual. That is just the beginning of why a relationship with Christ is of surpassing value. Paul goes on in the second half of this verse to move from what he has thought and how his mind has shifted in his thinking, um, both in salvation and, and currently. And you can see the intensity in Paul's writing as he lays out these truths, and you might think that perhaps he has reached the pinnacle of what he is trying to communicate, and yet we see that Paul has one more comparison to make. Like I said, up to this point, this has all been a way of how Paul has thought or counted or esteemed certain spiritual accomplishments or privileges. What Paul's about to explain is that this truth goes beyond our thinking and our disposition of the heart. This time he focuses on the reality of what following Christ cost him. And he puts it this way, I have suffered the loss of all things. It did not just affect Paul in his thinking, disposition of the heart, it affected him, it affected him practically. He says that he has um, suffered the loss of all things. Well, what are those losses that Paul is speaking about in this passage? Well, he's lost all of his confidence in all of his, in, in all of his spiritual achievements, and he's already kind of laid all of that out. But consider what it cost Paul to leave who he was and, and his upbringing and what he was pursuing. Consider what he lost when he left all of that, that entire religious community, and chose to follow Christ. He was a significant figure in the religious community. And he probably would have continued to rise in rank and importance. And with this rise of rank and importance, he would have come money, prestige, comfortable living. But yet when he turned to Christ, he lost all of that. And when he, um, when he turned his back on his religious upbringings, he lost all of those privileges and rights that he came to. That would have uh, been his because of that. He even had to work. He no longer had the financial uh, support from that, that other religious community. Now he worked with his hands to supplement his coming income and to make a living. 1 Corinthians 4 verses 9 through 11 also helps us to understand the things that Paul experienced as loss— just mention these things that he says. uh, Things like this. What kinds of loss did he experience while he was sentenced to death? He was a spectacle to the world. He was a fool for Christ's sake. He was weak. He was in disrepute. He hungered and he thirsted. He was poorly dressed. He was buffeted and homeless. He, He labored with his hands. He was reviled. He was persecuted. He was slandered. He had and he still is, he was viewed as the scum of the world and the refuse of all things. He went from prestige and influence and being viewed highly respected to being viewed as scum. We could look at those things and we could say, wow, Paul probably really would have rather had all of those, these things and followed Christ. Did he have to lose all of those things? Paul says, it doesn't matter. In my estimation, as I look at my ledger of gains and losses, it does not matter the fact that I lost, that I lost all of those things. He suffered the loss of all of those things, But he goes on to say that he counts them as rubbish. He views those things that are are, are things of comfort and ease and actually are just things of normal life experience. A steady job, clothing on his back, food to eat, respect from other people. Those are just normal things that people want to have, and Paul views those things, and he says this, I think differently about those things, and here's how I think about them. I count them as rubbish. What is rubbish? (laughs) Not a word we use very often here. Perhaps your mind, if you grew up in the King James Version, is thinking about the word that the King James Version uses. It's the word dung, manure, excrement. That word can also mean the scraps of food that are left over that are gross and rotten and are just given to the dogs. Whatever meaning Paul has in mind, the point is very clear. These things that perhaps we as humans would want to hold on to, Paul says, they are repulsive to me. Not that Paul wouldn't have wanted them, Not that they wouldn't have been something nice to have. But remember what Paul is doing? Paul's making a comparison. He's trying to get us to understand the surpassing value of Christ. And so he says this, all of these things are repulsive. How? Why? When I set them them against what he says at the end of this verse as gaining Christ— The comparison is not even worth considering all of those things as important and satisfactory they were are when compared to Christ are useless and there is really no stronger way that Paul could have expressed this thought why does he do that why does he explain it in this way why does he try to um, why is he view these things in this way It's because of the fact that he desires to gain Christ. The value of Christ is priceless because Christ is our treasure. Up to this point, Paul has been using the comparison of gains and losses throughout these verses. And he's given up um, all other forms of gain in order to get the true gain. And he brings this, this comparison to a climax. The truest gain is Christ himself. And it's almost as if Paul in his mind has a scale. And on that scale, he has all of these spiritual achievements, all of these niceties of life. And on the other side, he has Christ. And when the scale is let go, Christ sinks sinks swiftly to the bottom And the other side flies into the air. There is absolutely no comparison that Paul can make. Paul has given up all other forms of gain that he may gain what is truly valuable. This idea of gain has both present um, uh, ramifications and future realities. What does it mean to gain Christ? Christ. It means that in Christ, we have the power to have victory over sin. In Christ, it means that we have the ability to live a life that God would approve of. In Christ, it means that we have the ability to do what God has called us to do and to further his kingdom until he comes. And when he comes, we then will receive The future gain of Christ. And that is we will receive our glorified body. We will in heaven gain all of the spiritual riches of Christ, the inheritance that has been waiting for us. We will receive all of that. Why? Because in this life we valued Christ and we gained him above all else. These future ramifications Um, are things that we must view with the eye of faith. Human achievements are worthless, but a relationship with Christ is priceless. As we come to the end and the close of these verses, there are really two cries that Paul is making the one, two cries that we can see in these verses. And, and the first one is to those who have not yet seen Christ as valuable in salvation. Perhaps you are here this morning and you are reflected in the past life of Paul. You this morning are sitting here and you are thinking and you are considering And you are counting your own righteousness as good and having the ability to attain merit and favor before God. Do you see what the scriptures is saying to you this morning? That righteousness is of no value, that righteousness is actually condemning you because it is imperfect and full of sin. And your only hope is to look to Christ, to see him as valuable, to see him as the Savior. Perhaps you're here this morning and you think that because your parents are Christians or you have grown up in a Christian home and you know the Bible, perhaps you think that somehow attains you merit before God. But just like Paul, his upbringing is, gained him no merit before God. You must turn to Christ in salvation. For us who know Christ as our Savior, Paul cries out with the loudest voice possible, treasure Christ above all else. Both in the way you view your spiritual life and what God is working in you to become, value Christ more. Value Christ more than what the world has to offer the trinkets and worthless toys that it presents as valuable. Put them aside and follow Christ. We must live our lives in this way. And the reality is, is that we go into this week, the temptation and the pull is going to be to value other things greater than Christ. And we need God's help to view Christ as all-sufficient and as of surpassing value. Let's pray. Fathers, we are confronted with the truth of your word, we recognize that we desperately need your spirit to impress this truth upon our hearts. And I ask, Lord, that as we go from here this morning, you would not let us go. Your spirit would continue to work these truths in our lives, and that we would see Christ in all of his glory, and that we would see him as supremely valuable. Lord, I pray this morning that there is someone here that does not know you as Savior. Help them to see that their righteousnesses will never merit favor before you. Would your Spirit work in their hearts that they would respond to the truth this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to close our service with um, hymn number uh, 43, Christ is Sufficient cornerstone hymn 43. Uh, that's the black binder if you need it. As this first hymn is played, played, I want to challenge both groups of people this morning. If you're in here and you do not know Christ as your Savior, you do, you need to. And if God is working in your heart, as we stand on the pianos playing, I would encourage you to slip out the back and come to this side of our building. There are people here who will take the Bible and show you what God says about what Christ has done for you and how you can have the righteousness of Christ when your own righteousness will merit you nothing. I want to encourage those of you that do know Christ, don't allow this song and this verse to play and don't allow your mind to go to what's happened next. Allow the Spirit of God to work in your heart that he would convict you of areas where you are not valuing Christ as you ought. So we'll listen to one uh, stanza as it's played. And if you need to talk to somebody Head out at that, and then we'll sing some verses together.